Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to start off by um, just uh, proposing a model. And this is something that, that uh, has been kind of cobbled together uh, over a period of time and, and hopefully will be one way of envisioning from before the world was created till Mashiach comes. And using as a, a framework for this model, we're going, it's, it will be um, a little bit Kabbalistic, but also um, uh, touching on Jewish history as well. And we're going to use um, basically as the framework this uh, notion of what's called Keter, which is the topmost sphere. So, so let me just try to uh, let me just try to um, unpack those words and just give everyone just a, a, a very sort of like uh, uh, simplistic overview, but 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 something that will kind of uh, allow us to, to to follow the thought. So, so basically, God created the world using ten spherot. Um, so, what are the spherot? They're very mysterious, but if you think of them as energies and God combining these energies to make the physical world, then I think that we probably have as, as much as we need to, to follow the thought. And these energies are sort of arranged in a very systematic order. And they're, like we say, there are 10 of them. And those 10 can be divided up from the very, very top to the very, very bottom. Right? So the very, very bottom would stand for what we call Malchus, which is this dimension that we live in now. And the very, very top would stand for Keter, which means crown. And so, um, and but beyond Keter, because there's no beginning to God, right? God is without any boundaries. So even to use the word beginning implies some sort of boundary. So God is beyond that, beyond that, beyond that even, right? But nonetheless, so that the rabbis have given something that we can at least try to wrap our minds around as a beginning step. But when we use all of this terminology and, and, and numbers and this, that, and the other thing, and names and names of God, which we'll get to in a little bit, we have to always keep in mind that um, these are just things for us to be able to begin to place a thought against, but it's not to limit God. Okay, so good. So again, just a very basic review of the 10 spherot. We've got the, the top 10, and, um, or rather we've got 10, and those ten are divided up in various ways. The primary way are the top three and the bottom seven, right? Now, oftentimes, the top three are so ethereal, they're so majestic, they're so beyond that we kind of don't even deal with them on some level, okay? So, and again, the top three of those three, again, is this term keter, crown, which we're going to get to in a moment, all right? That leaves us with the bottom seven, Oftentimes we work with those bottom seven. If you want to get a little fancy, sometimes they're called the Zion Tachtonim, the lower seven, right? And those seven can correlate with the, the Sheva Bruchas, the, the seven blessings sent under the Chuppah, the seven days of the week, right? There are many applications where those seven as a unit are applied. The Omer. Um, the Omer as well. Um, so those seven also can be divided up between the top six and the bottom seventh. Okay? So that's, that's how you work with the ten. You've either got the top three and the lower seven, or you can have the top three, the six, 
and then the bottom seventh or the tenth, which would be our realm. All right, and 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 that's that's our framework. Okay, very good. So, so I saw Rabbi Kaplan said in inner space, um, very nicely that that the that the principal idea is remember a king has a crown. So when we call we talk about this realm that we're in, the bottom of the tenth, that's called machus, right? So machus really means kingship. So a king has a crown. So the crown keter is all the way at the top of the sphero. And basically what the idea is, is that the in-between eight, those sphero, in between keter, the very top one, and malchus, the bottom one, are just sort of like a conduit for keter, the energy of keter, right, the crown, to come down to the bottom, to malchus. So in other words, the crown is going on the head of the king, if you will. You know, of course, there's no physicality, but this is just, you know, ways of speaking. Okay, so, so, so that is really like the goal, basically, for the crown to be on the head, for Keter to be on Malchus. I hope that's clear. Now, with this in mind, again, now that we have just a sort of like a very basic overall idea of the, of the spherot and, and how they're arranged, what I'd like to do is walk you through a model, as I suggested, a model of the history of the world. And from before the world was created until Mashiach comes, using this model and Jewish history as well. All right? It will be very basic, but I, I think it's kind of cool. Okay. So each of the spherot, or groups of the spherot, have a certain divine name that's assigned to them. All right. Now, I, I always feel compelled. I always think it's important. Whenever we're talking about divine names, we always have to keep in mind that we're only talking about Hashem, right? The only God. When, when, when Judaism says God is one, we don't mean to say our God is stronger than your God, right? That's not, that's not the premise of Judaism. The premise of Judaism is Hashem Echad. There is only one power in the entire world. That, that, that's what we say. There is no other power. Okay, so when we talk about different names of God, like we're going to talk about the name Ehiyah, we'll refer to it as Ekiah often, but we have this name, and we have Yudke Vavke, and we have Adnus, right? Also pronounced Adonai, Aleph, Dal, Nun, and Yud. We have all these names of God, but what are we talking about exactly? And so I always feel so I, I must give this introduction first. Which is, that, which is that all of us have multiple names. And just to walk you through mine, you know, my, my kids call me daddy. God willing, I'll have grandkids. They'll call me grandpa or Zadie or something like that. Right? My wife will call me sweetheart. Right? My kids' friends will call me Mr. Sachs. All right? So you see multiple names all for me. And if you walk through your own life, you'll see that the same is true for you probably as well. Right? So, so, so a lot of it is dependent on how you appear in the moment. And so the rabbis have come up, or the Torah itself, God himself came up with different ways of referring to himself based on how he's manifesting himself in the moment. Right? So if I'm manifesting myself as the father of my son, 
to a friend of his, I am manifesting myself as Mr. Sex. Right? If I'm on, you know, if I'm giving a present to my wife at that moment for our anniversary, I'm manifesting myself as sweetheart. Right? So, so God himself will show you how it is that he's appearing in the moment. And that will be based on, on, on the name of God. But always we're only talking about Hashem. Right? The creator of heaven and earth, the God of Israel. Okay, good. So now, you have associated with this sphera, Keter, which is all the way at the top, associated with this sphera, you have the name Ehiyah. And we'll, we'll use the, from now on we'll say Ekiah. So this is a very, very interesting name. A very amazing name. It means, I will be. And what it's, what, what it's talking about is basically the, the will, the ratzon, of the plan, the plan itself, before the plan is initiated. So, so, so again, I always love the example of if you're going on a family trip, you don't pack up all your suitcases, go to the airport, and then ask, where are we going? Right? You know where you're going. You have a plan beforehand. So before God created the world, he had a plan before he created the world. So this is, this is suggested in the name Ekiah, which is, I will be. So at the very top of the ten spherot, the crown, the crown, Keter, is associated with this name, I will be. Now, what's so interesting, now we're going to kind of get into it a little bit more. Okay? Now listen to this. Keter has something very... There are many fascinating things about it, but, but one of the fascinating things about it is Keter is Gamatria 620. Now the Balaturim, right, about a thousand years ago, the Balaturim points out the fact that if you count the letters of the Aseris Adibros, the Torah as it was given at Mount Sinai, as it was pronounced, right, starting with, in other words, familiarly known as the Ten Commandments, if you count the letters of the Ten Commandments, it adds up to 620. And the Balaturim tells you the Balaturim himself tells you that's the gematria of Keter, which means crap. So isn't it interesting that the Torah itself is 620, right? Because the entire Torah is contained within the Ten Commandments. Isn't it interesting that the Torah is made out of 600 and, and, and the Ten Commandments are made out of 620 letters, which correlates with the word crown, which is the topmost of the ten sphero, which stands for the idea I will be, which is essentially the formation of the plan for creation. In other words, when we think of the plan for creation, when we think of Keter, this idea, this exalted idea of the plan is about to be initiated, that's the same number as the word Torah. In other words, the Torah is about to be initiated. Now with that in mind, we can get a new angle on understanding a very mysterious Gomorrah, which says that the Torah existed 974 generations before the world was created. Right now, the Torah is what? The Torah is Keter, 
The Torah is the crown of creation. When we go back to this idea of Keter, we see Keter equals 620, which is the Ten Commandments, which contains the entire Torah. So up above most, we have the plan for creation before the world was created, or the Torah as it existed before the world was created. Because the whole idea of Keter is I will be. It hasn't happened yet. So there was a plan for the world before the world was created, and that was the Torah itself, and it's hinted out in the word Keter. Because Keter is 620, which is the Torah. And we know the Torah existed before the world was created. So the plan for the world, the I will be before the world was created, was the Torah itself. And then God made the world out of the Torah. <laughs> okay, now, the plot thickens. The plot thickens. Because when Moshe was summoned by God to be Moshe, the Moshe as we know him today, that happened at the burning bush. And at the burning bush, Moshe says to God, what name should I, what, should I tell the Jewish people sent me? And Hashem says, Ekia, which is, which is the name, the divine name that's assigned to the sphere Keter, which is all the way at the top. Now, what was, which we said is Torah, and Torah before the world is created. So now you see that this Torah is now coming down into the world, because Hashem refers to himself, he's manifesting himself to Moshe Rabbeinu at that moment with this divine name of Keter, of Ekia, and says, I will be. And what was, what is the plan? The plan is that Moshe should take the Jews out of Egypt and return them back, God says, to this spot, which the Torah says is Mount Sinai, which is where the Torah was given. So in other words, here you have another manifestation of Ekiah, which is Keter, which is 620, which is Torah, and it's appearing again. It's starting off all the way at the top, and now it's appearing historically at the burning bush, announcing the rival, I will be what? I will be the one who gives you the actual physical Torah itself at Mount Sinai. So, so now you see this energy of Keter is coming down into the world. It's before the world is created. It's the Torah before the world was created. It's the plan for the world. And then God makes the world out of Torah, out of the energy of Torah. But then comes the time for the infinite to be compressed into the finite and for the actual Torah to be given. And so, very strikingly, the name reappears, Ekia, which is Keter, all the way above, which is 620, which is the Torah. Now it appears at the burning bush, because the Torah is about to be given. Now, what happened when we got the Torah? What happened when we got the Torah? What, on, on, how did we get the Torah, basically? Basically, the Medrash explains that God went to the various nations of the world and said, do you want the Torah? And everyone asked the same question. Uh, what's in it? <laughs> and, you know, one nation finds out no stealing is in it. And they're like, eh, you know, that's the Ishmaelites. And they were like, that's what we do. You know, that's how we conduct our business. Forget it. Then another nation, the... Uh, 
Esav finds out there's no killing in it. What do you mean? We, we, we live by the sword. What do you mean no killing? And then what did the Jews say? The Jews said, we will do and we will hear. Nasevinishma. And the angels like, like got like very excited. They said, who taught the Jewish people the secret of the angels? Because we said we will do before we said we will hear. In other words, we were so on board with God, it was sort of like, okay, God, whatever you want. You just tell us what to do, we're going to do it. Because we know you're good and your instructions are good and you made the entire world. Whatever you want, that's what we're going to do. So we will do and we will hear. Unbelievable. And then the Gomorrah says that what happened was, now listen very carefully, I'm using this word very intentionally. The Gomorrah said that for each one of those phrases, nase v'nishma, we will do and what we will hear, do you know what we got on our heads? Crowns. Oh, didn't we just say that Keter is 620, which is Torah? Didn't we just say that Keter is the highest of the Sfirot? Didn't we just say that that's the Torah before it was created, which aligns with the name Ekia, which comes again at the burning bush? Which, which, which is bringing all the Jews to Mount Sinai to get what? Keter! To get Torah! And now all of a sudden we have it on our heads! And then it said that for this, that we got to the level of Adam and Chava before they ate from the Eitz Adas, and at that moment we had achieved immortality to live forever. We know that this is going to be one of the aspects when the, when the world is completely reaches its ultimate tikkun, by Tehiyas Amesim, resurrection of the dead, will also have immortality. We achieved that at that moment. The catcher came down on our head. Right? The crown came down on our head. But then what happened? We did the 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 Cheta Eagle with the with the golden calf. And and one of the forms of chuva that we did, very fascinatingly, because if you line up the whole eating of the tree of knowledge and the sin of the golden calf, you'll see that they line up almost exactly. And what happened after we ate from the tree of knowledge? Death came into the world. What was one of the ways that we, were, we did tshuva? It says that we gave back our ornaments. And the Ramban points out that that's referring to the fact that we gave back our immortality. And that that was a form of our tshuva. So, so the crowns of our head were removed. Okay? But if you look in the Gomorrah there, it says, like the next line or a couple lines later, it says, but the crowns on our head will return. So this then is now historically taking us to the days of Mashiach, when, day, when the crowns on our head will be returned. So again, what is that? Let's just make sure that we've got the model in our head because every single value has multiple assignments here. <laughs> so we have to make sure that we're following. What does it mean that the crowns on our head are going to return? So that means that, that, that basically we're, we're going to live forever again, right? It also means that we'll be able to receive the Torah again in the deepest way right, in the fullest way. It also means that on the grandest level, and this is really the, the main point I want to say, that this sphere of Keter, 
all the way above, we'll be able to come down to Malchus. That's what it means we'll receive the crowns on our head again. In other words, the world is going to be able to be infused with the highest, highest divine energy. And it will be able to hold it. And this is the historical process. So to shorthand it, we're going from Keter, which is the highest sphere, which stands for Torah, and this name, I will be. I will be is the plan for the world before it's created, which is the Torah as it existed before it was created. It comes down again. It manifests itself in history in the here and now at the burning bush, where Hashem says, I will be. Now go take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them to Mount Sinai so that I can give them the Torah. We then get the Keter, the crowns on our head, but we make a mistake. We're not on the level yet to fully hold it yet. But it says the crown will reappear. And that will be Ketcher coming down to Malchus again. Now, now, that's a model of seeing before, from before the world was created until Mashiach. It's tracking the, uh, the path of the Torah. The Torah from before as the plan for the world before the world was created to the giving of the Torah, to the ultimate re-acceptance of the Torah, and the being, a, the being able to hold the full Torah, basically. Okay? So you're tracking the path of the Torah through Jewish history, from before the world was created, to when it was given, to the end of days. Alright? Now, listen to this. Because it has this has many, many implications. But this is the one that I am... I find very, very amazing. You see, Keter, Rabbi Kaplan explains in Inner Space, if you want to get a, a, a wonderful understanding for all this, highly recommend this book, Inner Space. So Rabbi Kaplan explains that, that Keter, because it's so beyond, right? Um, so ethereal, so like other dimensional, that there's a debate among the Kabbalists whether or not you can even call it a sphere because it's so high up. So, it, so in some models, Keter will be the very top, but in other models, they'll say, no, it's too beyond. Let's, say it, let's call it Hachma instead. So we'll say there's Hachma, Bina, and Das, and those will be the top three. Okay? But there's another model that they also use where Keter is in fact the top of the three and you have Keter, Hachman, and Bina. Okay, so in some models there's Keter. In some models there's Das. So it, it depends on which model you're using. Okay? But what's interesting about Keter is that when you, even when you count it, it has this sort of quasi-element where it's sort of a sphere, it's sort of not a sphere, because it's so divine and it's so beyond. And Rabbi Kaplan brings as, a, um, as an analog uh, something very, very fascinating, which is that, you know, we have, many, um, we have many paradigms of ten in the Torah. One of them are the ten utterances that God created the world with, which of course align with the ten spherot. Another is the ten commandments, right, which contains the whole Torah. And that's, that's another one. And he says, if you look at the topmost one of all three, they all have something in common, which is that they're there and they're not there. They're part of the group, but they're also not part of the group, to be more specific. 
we, the language of, this, of, 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 of the divine utterances, of the ten divine utterances, Vayahi or, and God said, let there be light. And if you look, there are nine Vayahis. All very good, right? But where's the tenth? So the rabbis sort of like try to figure out, well, where's the tenth? And they conclude that the tenth is Breshis bara Elohim In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you see, it is the first of the utterances, but it doesn't quite fit into the pattern for the rest. All right? Like Keter. Keter is the topmost, but it's also kind of not in the group, but it kind of is in the group. Do you, do you understand? Sort of like defies the model a little bit. Again, the first of the Ten Commandments, same deal. It says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God your God. So the Rambam says, that's absolutely the first commandment. It's the commandment to believe in God. By the way, you want to hear something interesting? We have the universal mitzvot, the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, which are mitzvahs for all of humanity. And one of the... So, so people think, well, there's, there's only seven commandments. But each of those commandments contain other commandments, right? It's really seven category headings. And interestingly, one of the category headings for the fact that you have to believe in God is the obligation to pray to God. So in other words, all of humanity has the obligation to pray to God because if you actually believe in God, you'll pray to God. It's, it's an interesting extension. But anyway, so the Rambam says, the first of the Ten Commandments, 100% a commandment. The commandment to believe in God. Very good. Except the Ramban says, you can't command that. You can't command belief in God. It's too beyond. It too defines and saturates the entire premise and everything. So you can't, you can't include that as a commandment. It's not a commandment. It just is. So again, like Keter, it's part of the ten. Is it the topmost of the ten? But it's too beyond. So it is and it isn't. Just like the first of the ten commandments and the first of the ten utterances. And if you think about it, this is actually very logical. It's not just a cool pattern, but it's very logical because it's sort of like what we're talking about. Remember, all of Kabbalah is based on one very simple thought, which is, how does the infinite manifest itself in the finite? In other words, if you have something that has no boundaries whatsoever, how from something that has no boundaries whatsoever do you get something concrete? It, so, so there is, there is some sort of, so, so, so now we talk about the sphere road and we talk about all sorts of things. There's sort of like the, the divine pathway of the light be- becoming that, right? And we see that, by the way, in physics, which is, you know, which is E equals MC squared, which is that energy becomes mass. So you have something which is like, you know, wildly without boundaries, and we have the actual formula for that, how that becomes mass. And again, the, the Higgs boson, or which is called the, the God particle, which is not a particle itself, but it's a field of energy where energy, which energy passes through and develops mass. Right? So we have this in physics. We have, we have this notion. But we were talking about it from thousands of years ago, using these same ideas, but a different vocabulary. Because we didn't, have, we didn't have the instrumentation to be able to present it in the way that they do in modern times. But we're absolutely talking the same language. Okay, so again, it makes sense that when you're talking about these divine constructs of ten, that the topmost one is going to border between the infinite 
and then just start to get into the finite. Just get some boundaries around it. So it can be included in the group, but also if you look deeper in it, it really can't be included in the group because what we're tracking is the path from the infinite to the, to the finite. Right? So, so that's something along. Okay. But now, once an order has been established, how do you rearrange the order? In other words, in other words, nothing is hard for God. And while God put a system into place where there's something called nature, right? There's something called nature, which is like, you know, I don't care how righteous a person is, if they run in front of a speeding car, the speeding car is going to hit them. Maybe they'll survive, but the speeding car will hit them. So in other words, there are certain things that have been wired, hardwired into nature, right? So, and yet, we have to say at the same time that God can't possibly be bound by that. So Rabbi Kaplan says something very interesting. He says that, that this idea of Keter, which, which is the top, the crown of everything like that, actually tracks through creation. So this energy of beyond is actually weaved into creation so that at any moment there can be a beyond moment which isn't subject to the natural. So using the model that we established, let's show an example of this because what did we say was the model of Keter, of the model for the beyond. We said it was Torah, right? Because Keter is 620, which is the number of the letters of the Ten Commandments, which holds the whole Torah, right? So now do you understand the power of Torah study? Do you understand that when you open up the Torah, that you are releasing Keter energy into the world? That you are literally opening up a porthole for energy from the beyond to flow into this dimension? Do you hear how amazing that is? Like you have, like in your, in your chumash, in, your, in any Torah book, you have literally a porthole that you can open and now you've created an opening for Keter energy to flow into this dimension. It's amazing, actually. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, we always look to the first letter of the Torah, or I always look to the first letter of the Torah, because I, I love it so much. And you'll see the same idea in the very first letter of the Torah. Because everything, basically, if you, if you can think of the Torah as like this, this uh, upside-down you know, triangle or pyramid, it's like the whole Torah is balancing on, on, on the first letter, on the base of Breshi. Okay? On the first letter of the first word. So what do I mean by that? So listen to this example. We've shared it, but you, you'll see how it connects. The base is really interesting because it's a large base. Now you know the, the rule, which is that everywhere, somewhere in Tanakh, there's going to be a large version of the letter, of every letter, and a small version of every letter. Okay? So where's the large base? It's the first letter of the Torah. Okay. Now, I learned from Rabbi Wolfson in the name of the Chassam Sofer, who is a big Kabbalist as well, a very interesting thing. 
which is that whenever you see a large letter, it's four times the gematria of what the letter would be, the value of the letter, excuse me, would be normally. So that means that the first letter of the Torah, which is, remember, the Torah is the blueprint of, of the universe. So that means the very introduction, the gateway to the, to, the, to the blueprint of the universe has simultaneously two values. Two, because the letter Bez is the number two, Aleph Bez, right? Aleph is one, Bez is two, right? But it's also a large Bez, which means it's also eight. Eight is the number of miracles. Two is the number of nature. Right? Because two is nature. Why? <laughs> Heaven and earth. Good and evil. Positive inclination, negative inclination. Male and female. Yeah. Written Torah and oral Torah. Right? Also, free choice. I can do this, or I could do that. Right? So, everything is basically two. That's, that is nature. But, it's a large base. Because while God simultaneously created the boundaries of this world, the natural order of this world, it's also a large base, which is four times the gematria, which is eight, which is the number of miracles, which means that God weaved into nature the path of miracles. So that miracles are always an option and are part of the structure of nature itself. Wow. Which again is this idea of keter, this beyond energy being weaved through creation in the embodiment of the Torah. Because through Torah, we can transact all sorts of miraculous things. Now listen to this. Listen to this. On the subject of miracles, right? This is really amazing. This is really amazing. So this is from the Sefer Yetzirah. Sefer Yetzirah is, right, that's the, the first mystical work, okay? So some people say Rabbi Kiva wrote it. Other people say Avraham Avinu wrote it. Other people say Adam Harishon wrote it. Okay, so, so it just shows you just how, how holy and how, how much covet, how much honor is given to this text, right? So there's a word for, one of the words for miracles in, in Torah is the word Pella. Pella means a wonder, right? So, so, so look at what the Sefi Yitzhira says. Amazing, amazing analysis. And we're on the same subject, by the way. We haven't changed subjects yet. So, so Pella. Look at the word Pella. So you know that the Aleph base, the, 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 the Hebrew alphabet, which is called Lashon HaKodesh, and remember God created the world with the Hebrew letters, the energies of the letters, okay? So the, the, the groups of um, letters, or the 22 letters, are, are, are made into five groups. Depending on where on your mouth you pronounce the letter will be which category the letter is assigned to. So, so let's look, to, just to use an example, because the, the Sefi Yitzhah says this about the word Pella. Pei, P, P, Pella, there's a group of letters which is from the lips. Okay? So Pei is with the lips. Pella. 
Lamed, that's the second letter. Pelet, by the way, is Pei Lamed Aleph. Lamed, if you do it yourself, you'll see Lamed, you're using your tongue on the, on the palate, right? So, and then Aleph is, is a sign for the throat. So, listen to what the Sefer says. They say, look at the, look at the, um, the journey of this word of Pella that it goes from the most revealed place, right? P with your lips, because you can see another person's lips, to inside your mouth with the lamed, to the back, to like your throat or your tongue or whatever it is, to the back of your throat for the aleph. So, so the word pella, which means wonder, goes from, what is a wonder, right? It's, it's going from the revealed to the concealed. Okay, so, so now they point out the following, and this was a mind blower for me. So if you want to, so make a little chart in your mind, like, like you're going up, you're going from this world up into the heavens. Okay, and so it's a ladder. Pay, most, 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 most revealed, right? Lamed, little more concealed. Aleph right at the top. So now if you spell it the opposite way, Pella is the word Aleph. If you go from top to bottom, Pella wonder is the manifestation of the Aleph coming from above to below. Right? So we're saying that a Pella is going from the revealed to the concealed Aleph, which is the Aleph. Aleph is one. Aleph stands for Hashem. Remember, Aleph is composed of three letters. Two Yuds and a Vav, which adds up to 26, which is Yud Ke It's the highest name. So the Aleph is the utmost energy, and when it comes down to below, what manifests itself into this world? A wonder, a miracle. So now, keep in mind, keep in mind that um, that when we talk about Keter at the, at the top, right? I had a question, and um, which is that since Keter is um, assigned this name Ekia, right? I will be, and it's at the it's at the top of the ten sphero. What about? What about um, Yudke Vavke? Like that, that to me, I always felt like, wait a second, that's, that's the highest, holiest name, right? So how could Ekia be at the top? So I had a bit of a crisis. And so I pulled last week's talk off the internet <laughs> until I researched it further. And I found out, no, 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 it is, it's, it is the highest and the holiest. Okay, good. Because you see, this should be a lesson to everyone. Anyone who's interested in learning Kabbalistic thought, you can't learn it out of a book. <laughs> okay? Because everything, even if it's a great book, it's just going to give you a taste. But it's never going to give you the full context. And it's too involved of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a discipline to contain all of the information. So, so don't, don't learn it out of a book. You have to learn it from a teacher. You can get some basic vocabulary and things like that. But just, even if you learn it out of a book, 
please don't think you know anything. <laughs> Just say, okay, so now I've got a grounding. When they say that word, I'll have a sense of what they're talking about. But, 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 but just say, okay, now I'm prepared to ask a question. As opposed to, I've read it, now I know it. Okay, so you'll do yourself a favor. And, and everyone who you share your insights with a favor. <laughs> if, if, you, if, you, if you have that in mind. So, so I, wrote, I made a bunch of phone calls and I did a panic search. And I got, thank God, an, an answer. That the Shalah HaKodesh, right, one of really the, the greatest, 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 explained that beyond everything is the name Yudkei Vavke. Okay? And I'm sure it's way more detailed than that, but, but, but you should just know that, 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 that the simple name Yudkei Vavke without vowels, all right, so that's a whole another category, but I'm not prepared to discuss it because I don't know, but already you have... Once you have vowelization, that, that already is kind of going down the chart. That's already an aspect of simsum, because you're already limiting something when you're adding vowels. But there's a name beyond vowels, right, which is even above keter and everything like this. Okay. So, so, So this is this is what it is. This is this is the, the, we're, we we live in such a, a wondrous world, and um, and and there's the gateway to to miracles and to openings absolutely everywhere. And what it means is, no matter how much you convince yourself otherwise, you're not stuck. You're simply not stuck, because simultaneously that small base which stands for nature, is also a large face. It's also, it's also signifies miracles. And I want to give you an example, and, and maybe it's, it's really a very mundane story, but maybe that's why it's a good story, okay? But it happened to me, and I was like amazed that I actually was able to use my Torah learning in, in this context, okay? So I was going to an appointment, and... Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, I, sometimes you're early. <laughs> it's rare, but I was early, and I, I was thinking, you know, I'm driving down this road, and there's this Baskin and Robbins that I always drive by. <laughs> and it happens to be that I'm not fleshic. I didn't have meat for lunch. You know, really, all the gates are open. <laughs> I can, I've got time. Got a little cash in my pocket. I could get an ice cream. What a, what a nice treat that will be. There was only one problem. I actually didn't want ice cream. <laughs> but I thought, you know, this occasion never presents itself to me where I can just go to this Baskin Robbins that I've driven by maybe a hundred times. I can actually go in and get an ice cream because I have time and, you know. So, so what did I do? I, as I'm debating this, and also in the back of my mind really feeling like I, I didn't even want it, but whatever it is, I, 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 just, my, I just find my hands turning into the parking lot and <laughs> parking. And I get out of the car and I walk into the Baskin Robbins and I look around and I'm like, what am I going to get? Um, I guess I have to get something because I'm here. Right? And then I remembered this teaching, which is very much in line with what we've been learning up until now. But we'll say it again. 
in, when I was uh, taking geometry, I, I learned that, that a solid line is actually not solid at all. It appears solid, but it's actually composed of tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of individual points. And each point is not connected to the other point. It appears like a solid line, but it's a series of points. And that to me was a bit of a life-changing teaching because what I realized is there's so many times in life, like me at that Baskin and Robbins at that moment, where you feel like you're in the solid line, you're stuck, you're, you're, you're right there. But I actually, as I'm standing in front of these cases and the person says, can I help you? I started thinking of this solid line <laughs> and how it's actually a series of dots and I am, I am not tied to this line that on any dot I can pivot because the previous dot is not connected to the following dot. And when I realized that I was not trapped in this Baskin-Robbins, I like Baskin-Robbins, by the way, but I didn't want any ice cream. <laughs> when I realized that I wasn't trapped there, even though she was looking at me, I'm standing in front of the case, I parked my car, are you insane? I just smiled and turned and walked out the door. And I felt so good. I felt, really, I did, because I, 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 I realized that this is, this is the world we're living in, that you're not stuck, that just because you start down a path, it doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean that you're locked into that. Just because you're locked into feeling sad one day, you don't have to decide to feel sad for the rest of the day. Just because you become depressed for whatever reason, I'm not talking about clinical depression right now, you become sad over something, you don't have to remain sad. At a certain point, you can say, you know what, this is my choice. I, I, and then, okay, we'll take some work to get out of that because there's a certain momentum keeping you into that emotional place. But you're not, you're not a slave to that. You know, so I want to go a little bit deeper right now, at least psychologically, and just just because I've experienced this and I never would have thought about it in this way in my life, but, but it sort of was presented to me in this way. And, 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 and I, I'm sharing this with you because the, probably my guess is that none of you thought of this in the, in the same way. So maybe it, it will be helpful. There's something which is a very serious disorder and it's something that we um, uh, have observed, unfortunately, increasingly in veterans uh, of wars, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's it's known by different things: um, post-traumatic stress syndrome or post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever it is. Yeah, it's a it's a big thing, and and people have it. Okay, and so what I'm talking about is 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 not that. Okay, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about a form of that. Okay, it's obviously not as serious since I've never been to Afghanistan. I, you know, nothing like that. I'm not, I'm not pretending that, that, that that's the case. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I think all of us have been through traumatic emotional episodes in our life, right? Very, very high stress, 
traumatic episodes. Let's just use the word traumatic, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that you... In other words, you can have been traumatized and not have been in a war, okay? Mo, mo, it's hard to actually get through life without having been traumatized at, on several occasions, okay? So I think that's just an emotional reality, okay? So, but here's what I'm talking about. That it's possible, and, and this was the new thought for me, that you can be in a situation that triggers stress, and what happens is your brain tells you that you're in that old place of trauma. Your brain, because it's feeling that stress again, it's telling you that you're in this place of crisis again. And so you're now reacting to your situation and maybe you're not doing it with another person or maybe you are or maybe you're just doing it in terms of your own inner emotional landscape. You are now essentially really overreacting because you, you have been put back into place with this trauma, right? And you haven't, it happened so quickly that you don't know that you're not in that same place of trauma. Let me give you a way of visualizing this. Imagine a person is drowning, and they actually are drowning to death, okay? And then they get saved, all right? And they're put on the dry land, right? But they're still wet. So they're still wet. So they, they think to themselves, if I'm wet, I must be drowning. But you're, you're not drowning. You're on dry land. In other words, if I'm experiencing stress, this must be the same stress in the same situation as when I was drowning before, when I had that earlier stress. But no, you can be wet and not drowning. You can experience stress, but that stress is not the stress of your trauma. That stress is not the stress of your crisis. Yes, you're wet, just like you were when you were drowning. But you are not drowning right now. This, this might sound obvious, but I, do, I don't think it is obvious. Because, because a person has to then walk themselves through this situation. And I'll give you a crazy illustration of this that happened on Shabbos with the Torah. Okay. So those of you who were there saw this happen, but it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's amazingly on point to this. We're reading, it was by Mincha, we're reading Parsha's Kitzetze, right? Which, which the Pasuk actually, the verse in the Torah is, when you go out to war, war, we're talking about the epicenter of post-traumatic stress disorder right now, is war. That's the Pasuk. When you go out to war, so we were looking to find exactly where the Parsha begins, right? Because we had to read it. And they were looking because sometimes when you roll up the Torah, you, it, it, you know, it goes to a different place, so you have to actually find it. So we found Kitzetze, and they call up the first person who says the blessing over the Torah, and the reader starts Kitzetze, and then he realizes it's a different Kitzetze. That it's not, it's when you go out, but it's not when you go out to war. Do you understand? 
you experience trauma, you go out to this trauma, but it's not the same place as you thought it was. You're actually in a different place in your life right now. But you think that you're in the place of when you go out to war, but you're in a different place. And it took a long time, and they finally found, okay, here's the, here's the right one. Here's where you go out to war. I thought I was going out to war. I wasn't going out to war. That we was someplace else. Wrong, we had the wrong key. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, 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 um, so that's us in life. That's us in life. We experience that stress. We think, I'm going out to war now. But I'm wet. I must be drowned. No, you, 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 can have your, you can have your stress, right? But, but don't allow it, don't allow yourself to convince yourself that you're in that same place because you're in a new place right now. You're in a new place right now. And, and every new place that you're in is a new challenge that God has give, put you in, but he's also put you in there as we were learning because he believes in you and because he's giving you the strength to be able to, to deal with that new set of circumstances. Right? So that is part of our work for Rosh Hashanah. To allow ourselves to actually enter into a new place. You see, you know what? You know, can you imagine you're wearing the same clothes as you wore when you were five years old? Like, you're an adult now. Why won't you allow yourself to be an adult? Why won't you allow yourself to be in a new place? Why, why do you insist on wearing the same clothes as when you were a child? The same emotional baggage. Why do you insist on, on presenting yourself that way? To, to yourself, anyway. Why? Why? Part of Rosh Hashanah is you're, al- you're not just in a new world, but you yourself are allowing yourself to be in the new world. That's, a, that's, that's very important. That's very, very important. And, and, and it's even deeper than that, but, but I'm just going to just tease you with the idea. Which is that part of the creation of Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Freeman was, was, was teaching from the Lukute Torah, from the Alter Rebbe. Part of the creation of Rosh Hashanah is actually a new creation of the past. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we've been talking about. Okay? So, so Hashem should bless us that part of our preparation for the new year should be allowing ourselves to enter into the new year. 